The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I don't know if you know who he is, but Andy Stanley is a pretty well-known uh, megachurch pastor of a church called North Point Community Church out in the Atlanta area. And he ended up generating some controversy a couple of years ago when he wrote this book called Irresistible. And in that book, he basically argued that Christians need to, quote, unhitch themselves from the Old Testament because of all of the problems that the Old Testament has created for our faith. Uh, Stanley, in that book, would go on to argue that the Old Testament is not only obsolete for today's Christians, but it's actually primarily to blame for many of the problems that we're experiencing in the church today, uh, even going way back historically to the Crusades, to the prosperity gospel, to anti-Semitism and even legalism. He says all of that traces its roots to the Old Testament, not the New Testament. Uh, in Irresistible, he writes, when it comes to stumbling blocks to faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. That's both unfortunate and unnecessary. So what should we New Covenant folks do with our old friend, the Old Testament? What if instead of Old and New Testaments, our texts were labeled the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible? That's clearer and more accurate. Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the author of Hebrews, and the Jerusalem Council have given us permission to unhitch our faith from God's covenant with Israel. Actually, they didn't just give us permission, they highly recommended it. The Christian faith doesn't need to be propped up by the Jewish scriptures. In a post-Christian context, our faith actually does better without old covenant support. So from these quotes, I think you get the general gist of Stanley's argument. And what it is is that the Old Testament is about God's covenant with Israel. And therefore, it isn't our Bible. It's really the Jewish Bible. God made a new covenant with us as Christians through Jesus. And so as Christians, our Bible is the New Testament. Um, as you might guess, some of you look kind of distressed right now as I'm seeing your facial expressions. Um, as you might guess, I, I don't agree with Stanley's argument that we ought to, quote, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, uh, defining the Christian Bible as only the New Testament. Now, in fairness to Andy Stanley, I think we have to acknowledge, though, that the relationship between the Old and New Testaments is actually a very complicated one. And it's not easy to understand. There's a lot of layers there and a lot of uh, theology that has to be worked through to understand the relationship between Old and New Testaments. Uh, should the Christian read the Old Testament differently than a Jewish person reads the Old Testament? How does the covenant that God made with Israel relate to the new covenant with Jesus Christ. 
In fact, that last question that I asked is the very question that the Jews were asking of Jesus even during his lifetime. And it's the question that is implied in the passage that I'm preaching on this morning. These four verses, Matthew 5, 17 to 20, are arguably the most difficult verses to understand in the entire Sermon on the Mount. And some would even argue that they're the most among the most difficult passages in all of Scripture itself. But I could also argue that they are among the most important instructions given to us as to how we ought to interpret Scripture. Let's take a look at these four verses together in Matthew 5, verse 17 to 20. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now in today's message, I'm going to try my best to explain these words in a way that is clear and understandable. And there's so much that could be said on this complicated topic of Jesus' relationship with the Old Testament law, and in fact, the whole Old Testament. But rather than trying to tackle the subject comprehensively, systematically, I'm going to try to limit my focus to simply the claims that Jesus is making in these four verses, okay? Jesus' first statement in this passage implies that there were some in his time, who were accusing him of basically trying to undermine the Old Testament law. He was being subversive of their traditions. His teaching, first of all, seemed so different than all of the other rabbis that were teaching in their synagogues. He didn't teach like the other teachers did. Let me give you just one example of that. In Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 19. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, for it does, doesn't go into their heart but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So in a single stroke, Jesus seems to be abolishing all of the food laws in the Old Testament, basically telling the Jews, you can eat whatever you want because it's what comes out of a person's mouth that God cares about, not what goes into them. In other words, the food. So right away, Jesus is establishing that his teaching seems to be contrary to the Old Testament law. 
But it wasn't his teaching alone that created suspicion about Jesus' attitude toward the law of Moses. His actions drew concern as well. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. At the time, Jesus went throughout through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. See, according to that Jewish tradition of the time, Jesus' disciples were essentially harvesting when they were picking the heads of grain in the field and eating them as they walked through these grain fields. And harvesting meant working, and working on the Sabbath was breaking the law. But rather than rebuking his disciples, Jesus ends up defending them, justifying their actions. Look at Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So again, according to the religious teachers of the time, healing also fell under the category of work. And so once again, Jesus shows no regard for the law by healing on the Sabbath and thereby breaking the Sabbath by doing work. And the confusion about Jesus' relationship with the Old Testament law wasn't confined to these religious leaders alone. Even John the Baptist's well-meaning disciples struggled with what appeared to be a lax attitude toward the law and religious practices displayed by Jesus and his followers. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? They were essentially asking Jesus, Why aren't you teaching your disciples to fast? Why aren't you and your followers, in other words, behaving like observant, righteous Jews who obey the law? Now, based on what what they've already observed about Jesus' teaching and his actions, they might have thought that Jesus would have responded to their question with something like, forget the law. I've come to do something totally new. None of that Old Testament stuff matters anymore. I'm abolishing it all. But surprisingly, that's not what Jesus says. In fact, he says the exact opposite. Again, these verses, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This word, the law and the prophets, was a commonly used term in those days to refer to the entire Old Testament, all the books of the Old Testament. 
And I highlight that phrase, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, because it shows how emphatically Jesus is saying, Scripture cannot be broken. You may be familiar with this more literal rendering of this phrase as no jot or tittle. And I want to explain where that comes from a little bit. This is the word Elohim in Hebrew, which is one of the names of God. And within this word, this title for God, is this little letter called Yod, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, what we could also call a jot, a little dot, which is about equivalent to an apostrophe in English. That's the jot. Go to the next slide here, and on the left is the Hebrew letter Bet, and on the right is the Hebrew letter Kaf, okay? And they are basically identical to each other, except that the bet has a little, what in today's fontography we would call a serif, okay? A little nubbin there at the end. That is called a tittle, okay? A tittle. In other words, what Jesus is saying is not even the smallest letter in the alphabet, not even a little piece of a letter, from the entire Old Testament law will be abolished by my mission. That's not what I have come to do. But then he clarifies and says, what I've come to do is to not abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to fulfill it. And this is the million-dollar question that we have to answer today. What did Jesus mean when he said, I have come to fulfill the law? And the prophets, in fact. Well, the way I want to answer it is by taking a look at Matthew's gospel and seeing how he understands Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament in his own gospel. And so we'll just look at a few of those examples to paint the picture of how Matthew understood Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 to 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So here, Matthew is stating that Isaiah's prophecy about a child being born to a virgin named Emmanuel was referring to Jesus' birth. Matthew chapter 2, verse 14 to 18, we have two prophecies here. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. This is speaking about his father, Joseph, where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Jerusalem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This first prophecy was spoken by the prophet Hosea, but it was originally referring to Israel, the nation, being brought and delivered out of slavery from Egypt by God. But now Matthew says that was actually referring to Jesus setting us free from our sin. The second prophecy was from Jeremiah and again was referring to the nation of Israel, which was conquered by Babylon. And so when it talks about Rachel weeping for the children... 
In the Old Testament, it referred to this Babylonian captivity. But again, Matthew grabs that prophecy and says, no, it was actually, ultimately, about Jesus Christ and the circumstances that would occur at his birth when Herod killed all of the infants in Bethlehem. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 to 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. When Jesus was baptized, he tells John the Baptist that this needed to be done to, quote, fulfill all righteousness. You see, John was offering a baptism of repentance in order to prepare the people's hearts for Jesus' ministry. And so it didn't make sense to him that Jesus arrives and says, John, I want you to baptize me as well. Jesus was sinless, and yet he received this baptism of repentance in order to identify himself with the sins of Israel. And so he describes that as the fulfillment of all righteousness, this inevitability that must take place for God's scriptures to be fulfilled through me. Matthew eleven thirteen 13, it says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Now, this is kind of a strange verse because it's saying that it's not only the prophets, but the law was also prophesying. And this is not language that we're familiar with. In what way is the law a prophecy? But again, if you look at that phrase, the prophets and the law, we know that that refers to the entirety of the Old Testament. And in essence, what is being said here is that the entire Old Testament could be viewed as prophetic in the sense that the meaning of everything in the Old Testament must be understood through Jesus, who is the fulfillment of it all. Can we go to that slide? Yeah. Uh, In that sense, every part of the Old Testament has a prophetic element to it because it all pointed ahead to Jesus. Every law, every covenant, every story, every psalm, every prophecy, it all finds its fulfillment and completion in Jesus Christ. And so this is how we must read the Old Testament, seeing it as the anticipation of the work of Jesus. It also means that only through the life and the work of Jesus can we understand the full meaning of all the things that took place in the Old Testament. I think probably by this point, just about everyone in this room has watched this movie, The Sixth Sense, right? And I've referenced it in past sermons. It's this story of a psychologist played by Bruce Willis who is trying to help uh, a troubled boy who claims that he sees dead people, the spirits of dead people. This movie is the most famous, though, for its surprise ending. When you discover that Willis's character, the psychologist, is actually dead himself. And once you're aware of that critical fact, what happens is that you are invited to go back through the entire movie and reconsider everything that took place, 
that you had just watched, reinterpreting it all in light of the ending that you are now made aware of. And I think actually that's a very helpful way of thinking about what we're being invited to do in interpreting scripture through the lens of Jesus. It's as if Jesus is the surprise ending to the whole story. And in light of that, you have to go all the way back to Genesis to the beginning and understand everything that happens in light of the fact that it was all pointing to him. Um, Let me give you a few examples of that. Uh, Isaiah's prophecy that a great light would shine in a land of darkness and bring great joy and it would be connected to the birth of this child was ultimately fulfilled through Jesus. Moses setting the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt finds its ultimate meaning in the freedom of bondage from sin that Jesus offers the world. The Old Testament's command to reserve one day each week as a day of rest called the Sabbath ultimately finds its meaning through the rest that Jesus came to give his people. Everything has to be seen through this lens of Jesus. And that becomes our work of understanding the Bible whenever we read it. And so here then is the question that I want to sort of wrap up this message with. Is that so if Jesus is the fulfillment of everything, then the question is this. What does God expect of us? What does he expect of us in response to that? Since it's all about Jesus and what he has done, does this basically mean that we're off the hook? In other words, it doesn't really matter how you live your life because it's really all about grace, isn't it? It's all about grace, not our performance. But here's the thing. That is not Jesus' conclusion to the work of fulfilling the Old Testament that he had come to do. In fact, again, his answer is the exact opposite of what our instinct tells us. Matthew 5, verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were considered the gold standard of righteousness in Jesus' day because they were the most radically committed and observant Jews among all of the other groups of people that were there at the time. They fasted and prayed and read scripture and attended synagogue services and tithed more than anyone else in this society at the time. And so it must have taken the disciples' breath away when Jesus tells them, unless your righteousness exceeds these Pharisees, don't expect to be in the kingdom of God. As astonishing as it is to consider, Jesus says that the problem with the Pharisees' righteousness is not that they set the bar too high, but they actually set it too low. Now, I think by this point, some of you may be getting very uncomfortable hearing this and thinking, are you talking about a salvation that we earn by our works? And I would say, no, not at all. We are saved by grace But his point is that if God's saving grace is real in your life, 
There has to be evidence of it in your present life. It's not just about some kind of justification status that you have with God. There ought to be some real difference of a life of righteousness that ought to be evident in this life and not just the life to come. That's, you're going to see this playing out for the entire rest of the Sermon on the Mount for the next several chapters. As Jesus will argue, the problem with the Pharisees' righteousness was this. That their entire focus was simply on outward acts that look good in the eyes of men. That's all that they cared about. Their reputation, their status, their mask of righteousness that they displayed to others. But what Jesus is going to argue through this sermon is that what God wants is our righteous living, but that our, our righteous acts must reflect a radically transformed and righteous heart. It has to flow from the inside out into the life that we live in this life. Luke chapter 6, verse 43 to 45 says this. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. I want to say this. I think there is so much confusion in our day about what it means to be saved by grace. There are so many who wrongly conclude that being saved by grace means that it doesn't matter at all what kind of life that you live. As long as you agree to the right theological facts about Jesus. Search the scriptures yourself and see if Jesus ever presents salvation this way. In fact, he argues that if you claim to be saved, there must be evidence of that saving faith demonstrated through a righteous life that is clearly visible in your actions. A righteousness that has no meaningful impact in how we live our lives is not a righteousness that Jesus identifies with. It is by grace that we are saved. But if that grace is real, then the change must be real in our lives. And Jesus is not going to be theoretical about this. He's not going to leave this as some foggy notion of righteous living. He's going to spell it out in really painful detail in the pages to come here. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next half dozen sermons. Because he's going to say, let's talk about anger. Let's talk about forgiving those who have hurt you. Let's talk about lust. Let's talk about truth-telling. And says, if you are a kingdom citizen, there will be real substantive change in your life in all of these areas of righteousness if you are part of my kingdom. And I think it's important for us to wrestle with this because religion is not about just showing up to church on Sunday and putting your money in the offering plate being part of a small group. These are wonderful things, and they're important things. But there are much deeper things than that that are on the heart of God for us about what it means to be a kingdom citizen and live the life 
that has truly been changed by God and saved by his grace. Apologize that this is kind of a long quote, but I think it's an important one. And I think Willard captures it right on the mark when he talks about the current state of affairs in America and how we think about salvation today versus how Jesus taught it. In the Divine Conspiracy, Willard writes, How does the grand invitation to life sound today? The bumper sticker gently imposes its little message. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Just forgiven? And is that really all there is to being a Christian? The gift of eternal life comes down to that? Quite a retreat from living an eternal kind of life now. What the slogan really conveys is that forgiveness alone is what Christianity is all about, what is genuinely essential to it. Can we seriously believe that God would establish a plan for us that essentially bypasses the awesome needs of present human life and leaves human character untouched? Would he leave us even temporarily marooned with no help in our kind of world? with our kind of problems, psychological, emotional, social, and global? Can we believe that the essence of Christian faith and salvation covers nothing but death and after? Can we believe that being saved really has nothing whatever to do with the kind of persons we are? For all of the talk about the, quote, new birth among conservative Christians, there is an almost total lack of understanding of what that new birth is in practical terms and how it relates to forgiveness and imputed or transmitted righteousness. The issue, so far as the gospel in the gospels is concerned, is whether we are alive to God or dead to him. Do we walk in an interactive relationship with him that constitutes a new kind of life, life from above? What must be emphasized in all of this is the difference between trusting Christ, the real person Jesus, with all that that naturally involves versus trusting some arrangement for sin remission set up through him, trusting only his role as guilt remover. To trust the real person Jesus is to have confidence in him in every dimension of our real life, to believe that he is right about and adequate to everything. And those words of wisdom are what I want to leave you with today because I think we need to really ask ourselves these honest questions. What has my claim of being saved by God through Jesus represented? in the way that I deal with my anger issues, my lust issues, my ability to forgive others and love my enemy and turn the other cheek, my attitude toward my material possessions and the things that I place my ultimate hope in in this life. And what Jesus says without apology in the Sermon on the Mount is, if that new life in you is real, that there ought to be a difference in these areas of your life. We're not perfect. We struggle to the very end. But that's a far different statement than saying, it doesn't matter what kind of life you live. All you have to know is you're forgiven of your sins. The invitation of the sermon that Jesus preached on this mountain is the invitation to surrender your life to him.
And that is how I hope you will hear these words that Jesus preached on the sermon that day. is not as a threat, but as an invitation to the life that you've always wanted. Because let's be honest here. You could have grown up your entire life in church and still be filled with an inner rage that is just consuming you like a cancer. Or a bitterness towards somebody who has wronged you that you have never been able to forgive after years of struggling with that. Or being consumed by the love of this world and the things that you're really living for are your idols that you feed through the money that you earn. And it's all about achievement or performance or wealth. And I think we need to see this sermon as an invitation by God to say there is an entirely different quality of life, what he calls abundant life that he offers us. But in order to experience that life, it requires an absolute surrender of ourselves to the authority and leadership of Jesus. Let's pray. I think the radical nature of so much of Jesus' teaching makes it really hard for us to grapple with it. We, we don't really know what to do with so much of it so that we sort of emasculate it of its power, of its radical nature, so that we can reduce it into the realm of possibility, that we can achieve these things through human effort. And we cannot. The Christian life is an impossible life, impossible apart from the enablement of God at work in us. And I pray that the full weight of Christ's teaching would hit us like that, saying, I cannot do this. I, I, I have struggled and tried so hard to stop being angry. But the next thing it triggers me and I'm yelling and I'm screaming and I'm shouting at people. I've tried for ages to overcome this porn addiction and I'm utterly defeated by it. I don't know how to have any victory over this lust that consumes me. Or maybe for some of you, you just have to acknowledge, I just love the things of this world. And church service is great, but nothing is happier than when I see that Amazon box on my front porch and I get to unbox the new toy that I got for myself. There's no joy like that. There needs to be honesty here. If we're really going to invite God in to say, Lord, do your deepest work in me. I don't really know that life right now, but I want it. I want it. I want to know what a life free of anger or self-absorption or the love of money looks like. I want to know what true freedom in Christ means to be able to forgive those who hurt me and turn the other cheek and love my enemy. And if you don't know that life, even though you have, may have grown up your entire life in church, my sincere prayer is that you would have the humility and brokenness and honesty enough to say, Christ, come fill me. Do your deepest work in my life. I am powerless to change by my own strength. 
but I need the work of your Holy Spirit alive in me to make me what I cannot be by my own strength. Would you just pray that for a minute or two? And we're going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to take part in this communion together as we uh, close our worship. But let me just give you a moment or two to just pray before God before we come to the table. Let's pray. As many of you know, historically, our tradition at ICC has been to take communion once a month. But during this pandemic, we've been taking it weekly. And frankly, I don't know if we'll ever um, move away from this new rhythm of doing it weekly. Because I just love that every message, every service ends with the Lord's table. Because after hearing a message, particularly like this morning, I think you can just feel the weight of that. maybe even the shame or the guilt of that. But instead of shame or guilt, what it ought to be is a hunger for more of God, more of Christ in us. And that's what this table represents. It's a table of grace. It's a table of God's sustenance, of His infusing His power in us to live the righteous life that He desires of every one of His followers. And so if you feel inadequate, If you feel overwhelmed or insufficient, this table is for you. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he gathered his disciples in that upper room and he transformed radically the meaning of the Old Testament Passover meal and said, this food, this bread represents my broken body and this wine, this cup represents my blood shed for you. So whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, Do it in remembrance of me. So let's go ahead and first take from the bread and then take from the cup and just remember that it is through the loving work of Christ on the cross that we have even the hope of a life of righteousness that he desires for us. Let's pray. Father, you... are strong, but we are weak. By our flesh, we find the impossibility of your demands. But in your grace and through the work of Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we have real meaningful hope of change in the gospel. And so even as we have come to your table this morning, we ask you that you would strengthen our weak bodies and enable us to do what is impossible for us to do by our own strength. Let Christ's strength be our own and help us to live a life of righteousness that would stand as a powerful witness to this world of the freedom from sin that Christ offers us. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.